0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the all-new 2021 Ford Bronco Sport. A 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. For the designers working on the Bronco Sport, the challenge was to recreate a vehicle that lives up to a legend.
1: It was such an opportunity. you know. How could you ask for something more exciting than that is to bring back an icon like Bronco.
0: That's exterior designer Dan Kangas. He really
1: likes his job. I probably talk about cars more than my wife would like.
0: <laughs> the Bronco Sport offers the kinds of sophisticated features that you dream of in a modern SUV, like Ford Co-Pilot 360 driver assist technologies. And yet, the look and feel is true to the classic and rugged Bronco heritage.
1: It's like a tool. What's there is only what's necessary. Dan's
0: team closely studied vintage Broncos, and they also attended serious off-road races, to spend time with the most dedicated four-wheel drive owners.
1: You're surviving in, in a dust cloud, pretty much, watching these vehicles go flying by. It's really insane. But it's getting inspired by the true race vehicles that are out there, because those are the most bare-bones, stripped-down, honest vehicles there are, right? It gives you a reality check, They're, okay, well, what can we take out uh, to give people what they need and not what they don't?
0: That approach is how you get elements like the Bronco Sport's one-piece front grille.
1: It doesn't have any chrome adornment. It's a no-frills design. It's just a surface with some perforation for cooling. It can't really get much more simple than that.
0: See the all-new Bronco Sport for yourself at Ford.com Bronco. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. There's a popular notion among people who spend lots of time in the wilderness that the trail is our teacher. And if you talk to enough serious outdoor athletes and adventurers, you realize just how harsh and beautiful and powerful trail lessons can be.
2: Cold is one of those primal fears for people. Like, it's really intense. It's really dangerous. It's really uncomfortable. But I will tell you, you know, crossing the Alaskan Range and, like, knowing I rode my bike there, that was really an amazing experience. You know, I was howling with the wolves one night, like, almost in a hallucination sort of state and not being scared, but just feeling like, what a cool place to be.
0: For the last three years, professional endurance athlete Rebecca Rush has been getting her trail lessons by riding her bike through the Alaska Range in winter. More specifically, she has been one of several dozen hardy participants in the Iditarod Trail Invitational, a 350-mile competition along the route best known for the historic Iditarod sled dog race.
2: And a half miles into 350. Okay, got to start somewhere.
0: In some ways, it's not a huge surprise that Rebecca has taken on this challenge. For decades, she has been a giant name in endurance sports. Beginning in the late 1990s, she was an elite adventure racer, helping her teams win events across the planet. She also completed a first female ascent of a climbing route on Yosemite's El Capitan. And in 2005, she switched to mountain biking and became a dominant champion in long-distance events. Her accomplishments include being the only woman to win the brutally difficult Leadville 100 four times. But while Rebecca is an extraordinary athlete, she has always hated the cold.
2: I will tell you, as a kid, like we grew up in in the Midwest and, you know, would ski at the local mountain. I was always the kid who was too cold and had to go in early and get hot chocolate and my hands were freezing. And so I've never been really adept in the cold.
0: This is exactly why she wanted to ride a bike in the Arctic wilderness. It was a chance for her to be desperately uncomfortable and to challenge herself in a way that she knew would hurt. Again, Not so surprising. After all, Rebecca long ago earned the nickname the Queen of Pain for her ability to push through the most agonizing moments of races. And as you're about to hear, she did find a new level of suffering in Alaska. But there was something else going on out there on the Aditarod Trail that was even more significant. You see, for the first time in her life, Rebecca actually understood what the pain was teaching her. To explain this, we need to go to Vietnam for a moment.
2: You okay, Yuen? Okay. Okay. Oh, stickered mine. We're going to be scratched up tonight. In
0: 2015, Rebecca rode a mountain bike 1,200 miles along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to reach the location where her father, a United States Air Force pilot, was shot down during the Vietnam War when she was three years old. Her experience was documented in a film called Blood Road, which won an Emmy
2: Award. It's incredible to meet somebody who helped find my dad. It was really important for me and my family, so congratulations.
0: Four years ago, Rebecca came on this show and said that the ride had connected her with her family and past in a powerful way. But just as importantly, it had taught her how to slow down, and shed what she calls her racing brain. This was certainly healthy for an athlete who'd been going full speed for a long, long time. But as she explains it now, she ended up coming out of that feeling kind of lost.
2: I went home really satisfied, you know, with a really full experience, but also sitting there wondering, is, is my career over as an athlete is my competitive spirit gone how do you top the you know doing the most amazing ride of your life like what do you do next how do you follow in, in those footsteps and i spent a couple years in a, in a pretty dark place coming back from that and really questioning who i was why i was riding my chosen career path what do i do next what's important to me
0: she didn't stop riding But her goals and motivations were shifting. Before Vietnam, during her many years of athletic glory, Rebecca really didn't know what she was after. So when someone would ask you back then, like, why you're doing this, like, what what kind of answer were you able to give?
2: It was kind of a, you know, sort of a George Mallory, because it's there, sort of a a sentiment of like, well, why wouldn't I want to go travel and adventure race? But, you know, there was a deeper meaning that I I wasn't able to articulate. And so, so really I never did give a very good answer. It was just like, well, it's fun and I can, I'll do it while I can. And then at a certain point it became my job and I had a responsibility if I wanted to keep my job to actually earn those podiums and earn those wins so that I could get renewed for the following year. You know, I thought I was training all along. I'm training for a race, but now I realize the races were training me.
0: In the first few years, after she came back from Vietnam, Rebecca thought she'd find new purpose by giving back. She created a foundation in her dad's name with goals that included removing unexploded bombs from the Ho Chi Minh Trail. She rode to the top of Kilimanjaro to raise funds for the nonprofit World Bicycle Relief. It was meaningful work, but something was missing for her. Ultimately, she realized that she needed to feel that pain of the trail again
2: in those tough moments, those hardest expeditions, that is where, you know, you learn the most about yourself as an athlete and as a human. And I realized that I hadn't gone to that really hard physical place in a while again, and that is what spurred on, you know, what is something I haven't done that I'm terrified of that is outside my element that is very, very committing. And so the Iditarod Trail was absolutely the, like, Craziest, hardest thing I said I'd never do that was still dangling out there. And there was a little part of me that's like, I wonder if I, if I could do that. And so really it was a curiosity to push myself as an athlete, but also knowing if I pushed myself again really hard, that I was going to open another door to understanding myself. Mm-hmm. I needed to go to that place again to take the next step.
0: So you end up settling on, okay, here's the biggest, baddest race I can find. <laughs> what was your emotional state like approaching, you know, that event? Like how, how anxious were you? How excited were you knowing what was in front of you?
2: I was absolutely terrified and, and dominated by fear of the cold environment and losing fingers or toes. Humans are not meant to survive in, you know, the Arctic in the winter, It's kind of like being on the moon. You need special equipment to be able to exist there. And if you stop or linger too long, um, it's a very inhospitable environment for humans. And it's scary.
0: And so, at age 50, Rebecca Rush started training for the 2019 Iditarod Trail Invitational. Chief among her concerns was the fact that she had both poor circulation and very active sweat glands, a bad combination for a frozen environment. She'd also suffered lung infections in the past during long and cold races, and she had little sense of the right gear or food to pack for the Arctic.
2: The biggest question was like, yeah, I was scared, but could I do it? And so year one, my rookie year, well into like my adult life and athletic career, I was a rookie at an event, and I went in like a rookie, like went as fast as I possibly could and about killed myself doing it. It's morning, day two. It's still like 30, minus 30 out or minus 20. It's so cold. It's, the sun's up at least. Beautiful view. but. Oh.
0: Between the start in Anchorage and the finish in McGrath, there are seven checkpoints where competitors can get hot drinks and food and a warm bed. Racers ride fat bikes, loaded with equipment for all kinds of scenarios, plus snacks, designed to be edible, even when frozen solid, at least in theory.
2: Only 60 miles in, I'm already, my camelback hose is freezing, my feet are cold. Kind of want to change a little bit where, where I have things on the bike, so.
0: But the thing was, as Rebecca would later learn, it actually wasn't that cold. Relatively speaking, Minus 20 is mild for the Alaska range in February. Still, she found it extremely difficult to eat or drink while out on her bike. And she'd stumble into checkpoints famished and exhausted. Then there was that night, late in the race, when she just couldn't make it there.
2: The harsh realization came that I wasn't going to make it to the next shelter hut before sleeping. And I had to sleep outside. And that was a really big deal for me to get out you know, the minus forty sleeping bag and get out all my equipment and lay down in in the snow. And honestly, I'm sitting here thinking I'm gonna lay down and I might never wake up again and so I'm like cutting down like pine boughs and trees to make a little bed and and for me it was truly survival.
0: She did a lot better than just survive. Rebecca was the first female finisher coming in at around three and a half days.
2: Okay, it's the last morning. I'm 10 miles from the finish, completely spent, (laughs) freezing cold. I'm just really in awe of Alaska and the people who can do this race and how incredibly hard it is. Um, I'm proud of myself and very humbled. The moment I finished, I was in tears. My face was puffy from, you know, you know, cold and, and I, you know, had to be escorted into a nice warm bathtub and, you know, I was sort of a sobbing, a physical and emotional mess because it was so hard and I was so relieved that I made it. But I crossed that finish line on fumes and proud of my completion, but also knowing in my heart that I could do better. And that was the motivation to come back year number two of like, OK, I can survive. Now I can come back and actually execute this in a, in a better way.
0: It was a reasonable expectation, all things considered. But the trail had a different lesson in mind. We'll be right back. Earlier, we spoke with Ford Motor Company exterior designer, Dan Kangas, about his team's effort to craft the all-new Bronco Sport with a look and feel that aligns with the rugged Bronco heritage.
1: You look back at the classic vehicle, and it's so simple, it's robust, strong, it's honest. Honesty is one of the key factors of this design process that we're going for. We, we didn't want to make an ostentatious or pretentious vehicle.
0: For inspiration, Dan's team studied 4x4s built for off-road races.
1: One of the things that struck me was I saw how important lighting was. There's no street lights. You're out in a desert going up a mountain. How do you know who's who? People customize their vehicle with light in such a way that makes them identifiable on the trail.
0: Dan wanted to create a light signature for the Bronco Sport that would be unmistakable. The best way to do that was to design lights that brought to mind that classic Bronco look. So we crafted simple and bold round headlamps with a horizontal bar the taillights, from a distance, show as a single enclosed circle of light.
1: If it's dusty or snowy or dark or rainy, it doesn't matter. If they see the lamps, they'll know it's a Bronco. It just catches your eye, like for myself. I see it going down the road, I'm like, that looks really cool. Oh wait, I worked on that. Oh yeah, that's something that I did.
0: See the all-new Bronco Sport for yourself at Ford.com Bronco. Going into the 2020 I did a rod trail Invitational, Rebecca Rush felt strong. She'd won the event the year before, despite making all kinds of rookie mistakes. This time, she was ready to roll.
2: I trained, I knew the course, you know, I, I dialed in my equipment, I, I knew what to expect, and I, I stood on the start line really pretty hyper focused of, you know, okay, I'm ready this year, I'm ready, I'm going to have a good race. Yeah. I'm I'm going to nail this course, you know, and I, I I stood on the trail pretty confident and I got a slap in the face half an hour in and made a mistake and, and suddenly the game changed.
0: It was a big mistake. 30 minutes after pedaling away from the start line, Rebecca followed a trail in the snow leading straight ahead versus taking one that went to the left. There's no official right or wrong way in a race like the Iditarod. You just have to get from one checkpoint to the next. But if you're trying to win... The trick is to ride the route that's seen the most traffic from snowmobiles and dog sleds because the biking is much faster and easier when the snow is packed
2: down. And so on paper, I took a more direct route. But what ended up happening is, you know, pretty soon into that decision, the trail got pretty bad and covered it like deep snow. And so instead of riding my bike, I'm walking my bike and I'm pushing my bike and it's snowing harder. You know, it wasn't this immediate realization It was sort of this slow burn of like, oh, cool, I'm taking this route. Oh, wait, is this wrong? Mm, I'm not sure. And then probably an hour period of really second-guessing myself. But, but there was a real sort of kind of downer realization that like, wow, I just really messed up. And to go back would take longer. I have to just push forward. I felt kind of sad and lonely. I knew I'd probably blown the wind and that was out of the picture, and I spent a little time having a pity party and feeling sorry for myself. But then I, it, it was snowing it was getting night. And th- then I quickly shifted into survival of like, okay, Rebecca, look at your map. Get yourself out of here. Take care of yourself. Like, you know, if you feel sorry for yourself and you're sitting here crying, like the tears on your face are going to freeze and you're going to get frostbite on your face. And so just get yourself out of the situation.
0: Rebecca trudged on into the darkness. Her mistake ended up costing her around six hours. The snow was so deep that she was forced to push her bike. It was rough. But it was also a scenario that she was much better prepared for after her emotional journey to Vietnam and her long ride on the Blood Road. And I wonder, would this have all played out differently if, if you had somehow done this race in 2015 or something?
2: Yeah, I, the Rebecca before Blood Road would have handled that differently. I probably would have yelled and screamed, and, and I might even have gone back you know, to the start. I was pretty close to the start. But, I mean, that said, like, I've quit one race in my life, and it's a high school cross-country running race. It was the regional championships my junior year, and I stepped off the course that race because I was typically the fastest runner on our team, and that day I wasn't, and I was behind where I thought I should have been, and I quit. And, I remember that so well of having to go to my mom and my teammates and my coach who were genuinely worried about me and I had no good answer for them as to why I quit. So, you know, when I say I was going to might have turned around and gone back, that wasn't going to happen, but I I do think the Rebecca before Blood Road probably would have spent more time beating myself up and thinking of like I've blown it, I suck, and instead it was a pivot of like this is a journey i'm growing as a person you know find the find the gift in sort of the loss and in losing my dad you know and him sacrificing his life during the vietnam war there have been gifts that have come from that there have been massive gifts that have come from that and and especially after going and riding blood road and and connecting with him and connecting with my family and so yeah i'm a lot better now at looking At what we have to be grateful for instead of what we have to beat ourselves up about or what we don't have.
0: In this case, Rebecca received a very tangible gift for her mistake in the form of her husband, Greg Martin. He's a serious competitive athlete himself, and he'd entered the Iditarod Trail Invitational after Rebecca encouraged him.
2: When I finally rejoined the course, I saw other tire tracks. I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) I'm not alone out here. And So I actually came up on, Greg was sleeping on the side of the trail. I came across this little bundle in the snow and I recognized his bike and his bivy sack. And I was like, oh that's Greg and he was sleeping so i didn't want to wake him up and so i just i drew this big heart in the snow and put a little piece of candy there so that when he woke up he would he would know that i was okay and you know know that i had passed him and there was a checkpoint about 10 miles up ahead and so my plan was i was going to take a nap at the checkpoint there and then and then kind of wait for him and connect and see how he was doing
0: after Greg made it to the checkpoint the two of them left together they ride at about the same speed. And so, without really planning to, they became a team, which was great until the already nasty weather went to hell.
2: You know, it was minus 50, 40-mile-an-hour winds. There was a period in in the race, multiple periods, where you couldn't expose any skin or eat any food for, for 12 hours, you know, going up and over the Alaska Range because the conditions were just too horrific.
0: Wait a minute, you you couldn't drink for 12 hours?
2: Yeah, not until you could get... And because, you think about it, you're in those extreme conditions. You're covered with a face mask, with goggles, with, you know, gloves on your hand. And your, your hydration pack is inside all of your layers to stay warm so it doesn't freeze. So if you want to drink water, that means unzipping, exposing, exposing your face, taking a drink, zipping everything back up and... There was no way I was going to expose my skin or risk dropping a glove. And it was so windy, anything that that wasn't attached was going to blow away. And, I mean, we were literally walking and pushing our bikes, and the wind is grabbing a 60-pound bike and, and knocking it over. And he was kind of like me, my rookie year, you know, he, he wasn't as prepared or as, as fit as he could have been. And he really started struggling. Um, and we'd been pushing our bikes for hours every day. And he was just really kind of like emotionally, like, I came here to ride my bike, not to push my bike. And I kept telling him, oh, the next part of the trail's really good. I swear you're going to love it. Like, oh, we'll just get to Rainy Pass. You'll love it. And, you know, he just really wasn't having a good time and he was suffering. And, and so when we got to Rainy Pass, which was you know just at the base of rainy pass which is about i don't know 150 miles in it's a, it's about halfway a little under halfway and um he wanted to quit there and i remember feeling really sad because i i didn't want to be alone i was really enjoying being with him and i said whatever you want to do we we had a good sleep we sat and we had a big dinner And we sat across the table and talked and I said, whatever you want to do, you know, I'll respect you, but there's nothing I want to do more than cross the finish with you and I'll stay with you. Like, we'll do it together. And I also said, this is what I think was the kicker. um, I said, look, if you stop now, you're going to have to come back and do this event again. (laughs) So you might as well check it off while you're nearly at the halfway point. He, He said, you know, okay, I'll go on. And I just said, okay, then I'm with you. We're a team till the finish. And I just remember feeling really happy that he wanted to go on because I didn't want to be alone because it was so hard that year with the snow and the conditions that I needed emotional support more than anything. And I was happy to be his emotional support, physical support, but I also needed it too. I I didn't want to go on alone.
0: So Rebecca and Greg suffered together. It was a long, slow push to the finish line.
2: We probably walked 150 miles of 350 just pushing our bikes. We're literally up to our waist in snow and lifting your bike, you know, a heavy loaded bike, a few inches and then taking another step and post-holing through and post-holing through. And literally, we were moving one mile an hour many times during the race, or, or even slower. It, it just was tedious, tedious work. And, you know, you could you sort of, like, try to walk or ride by Braille. If you, if you could find that harder surface underneath you where the snow machines actually went, you could maybe sink in only up to your knees instead of your waist. But if you get you know, one inch off to the side or the other, then you're you're in the super soft snow and, and you sink in all the way up. And so just the physical beat down that that was, was offering up for us um, really became emotionally hard to stay motivated when, when you're moving that slowly and you're like, we have 200 more miles to go and we're going one mile an hour. And then you start to calculate how much food you have left and all those sorts of things. And, and suddenly um, things get pretty dark.
0: Finally, after seven and a half days, more than twice as long as it had taken Rebecca the year before, they were done. By this point, the top finishers had long since taken off.
2: But that didn't even, that didn't matter to me. I didn't care. I I just, I felt proud of, of the way that we had executed in such hard conditions. And I just really loved my husband, and I was glad to have someone to hug at the finish line that, you know, the most important person in my life. If we could do that, I honestly felt like we can do anything. We are just, like, so strong, you know, as a couple and as human beings. If we can do that, we could do anything.
0: Which explains why they signed up for the race again this year and decided to make it even harder.
2: We elected to to do it self-support style. And what that means is you don't go into the shelter cabins, you don't get any of the food from, you know, the lodges along the trail, you don't get water from any indoor resources. And so what that meant is we were committed to sleeping outside, not going inside any of the buildings, and then melting snow um, with our stoves for all of our drinking water and carrying all of our food. And Greg said to me, my husband, he's like, I didn't think you were going to make it. He's like, I thought you'd bail at the first checkpoint and go inside and get some warm soup. And, I, and he told me this after. I'm like, really? You didn't think I'd make it? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, I was fine to do it, whatever you wanted. But like, I was sure what the first time we had to boil water that you were going to bail. <laughs> and I didn't. And I kept not bailing. And then he kept, he kind of got pissed because he's like, dang it. I just want to eat a bratwurst at that next rest stop, you know? <laughs> And by that time, he's, you know, at the halfway point, we made it through the Bratwurst area. Um, And once we got past that, he's like, okay, then I knew we were going to make it once we got past the Bratwurst.
0: (laughs) That is not what people usually consider the riskiest part of the event. Totally. The the Bratwurst zone. (laughs) We're free of the Bratwurst zone. I know we can make it now. (laughs) Was there a pleasure in doing that? I mean, was there... You know, you like a challenge and you hunger for it because it's delivering something to you. It's offering you what you've called gifts and teachings. But in the moment, does it feel like that? Oh. Or, or is does it just hurt?
2: No. In the moment, it, it's, it hurts. It's cold. It, it's a lot of extra work to do self-support and, you know, just – All your equipment's on your bike, and you know you're stomping out a little path in the snow, and you're sleeping in the snow, and everything's getting wet. It really was a pain, but it was a challenge, and I was like, "Well, I want to see if I can do this." I said I'm going to try it, and then it became a point of like, "Okay, I'm not going to quit."
0: When Rebecca crossed the finish line for the third time this year, she was once again the Iditarod Trail Invitational Women's Champion. She and Greg were also the top finishers in the race's inaugural self-supported class. Rebecca says it's the best executed expedition that she has ever completed.
2: Hands down, near-perfect execution. And there's so many stars that have to align for that to happen in in the stuff I can control and the stuff I can't control. There is this deep feeling of... Mm kind of satisfaction and and feeling satiated from the experience.
0: Despite winning the event for a second time, Rebecca insists that wasn't her main goal and that she really has changed a lot since her early racing
2: days. From the outside, it might look the same, my motivation for somebody. And, And yeah, I am still winning, but the motivation is completely different for me now. Yeah, I love to win. It's great. It's great feedback and reinforcement of a job well done. That's awesome. I love it. I'll take it. But it's not the driving motivator right now. It's it's that my bike is taking me to physical and emotional places.
0: Mhm. The consistent thing, of course, is just your desire to to push, to really work hard in these moments and I don't know if that light ever has stopped burning you know for you if you've ever feel like it's close to twinkling out and you want to just put your feet up on the couch for a while
2: (laughs) I mean I I do love rest days I love a couch I love a good couch and a warm fire Um, but here's the thing it's you know finishing the Iditarod or winning it this year that was not the end point and so yeah you know taking on the extra challenge of going self-support was not could we win it doing self-support it's can I expand my experience as an athlete and and really open the door to more bike expeditions? What about
0: the, you know, the the name you've been called for so many years now, Queen of Pain? <laughs> is that f- still feel apt or is that like, you're like, I'm putting that one on the shelf because I'm doing something different now?
2: You know, it depends how you interpret it. I, I, yes, in some ways, you know, I'd say it's more Queen of Perseverance rather than Queen of Pain. Pain, You know, pain's a four-letter word for a lot of people. But um, pain is really my teacher doing really hard physical things, using your physical body to work in order to strip away some of those emotional defense layers and strip away, you know, the armor that we put around ourselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, although it's you look at what it was teaching you in those years before Blood Road, Mm -hmm. and now you're open to a whole different kind of learning, it sounds like.
2: Well, yeah, it's, there's a saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Right. I was a different student then.
0: You can follow Rebecca Rush at RebeccaRush.com. Rush is spelled R-U-S-C-H. And you can train, ride, and race with her, really, at Rebecca'sPrivateIdaho.com. The film Blood Road is available for rent through Amazon or Apple. Or you can watch it on the website of Red Bull, Rebecca's longtime sponsor. Two other great films that you heard clips from in this episode are Rush to Alaska from Outside TV, online at OutsideTV.com, and Distant Dharma, available on Rebecca's YouTube channel. This episode was produced by me, Michael Roberts. With music by Louis Weeks, all episodes of the Wildfile series are brought to you by the 2021 Ford Bronco Sport, a 4x4 SUV with seven available GOAT modes that enable it to go over any type of terrain. Learn more at ford.com/bronco.